Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. This morning we will be continuing to look at the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin here in the Garden of Eden. Last week we looked at that singular moment in time, Genesis chapter 3 verse 6, when Adam sinned and plunged all mankind into sin and misery. When our covenant head, our covenant representative, enslaved us to Satan and to sin, we looked at when death entered the world and mankind was placed in bondage to death, the grave, and hell. We saw how Adam and Eve initially reacted to this and how they tried to cover their nakedness from God and to hide from Him. And this week, we'll be looking at how they answer God when He comes calling and asks them questions. Let's get started by reading our passage together this morning. Genesis chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 8 and go through verse 13. Hear now the words of the only true and living God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree. And I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy and infallible word. You may be seated. This morning, as we continue to look at the fallout of Adam breaking the covenant of works here in the Garden of Eden, we're going to spend all of our time in just one point, interrogation and excuses, where we will look at our passage this morning and see God's pursuit of the covenant breakers and their response to him. And I hope that as we do this, we will glean some weighty truths from the interactions that we see in our passage this morning. Before we begin and seek to do this, do this, though, let us go to the Lord in prayer together, asking Him for His help. Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, oh God, we desire that Your name would be glorified among us. You have glorified it in us by redeeming us as a people holy to yourself. We ask that you would 
continue to glorify your name as you sanctify us, as you conform us to the image of your Son, as you use your word and through your spirit you see sin die in our lives and righteousness live. Father, help us use this morning and our time together to urge us on in our labor to put off the old man and to put on the new created and perfect righteousness and holiness in your Son. Father, we desire that you would do these things not only among us, but also for our sister churches. This morning we lift up Redeemer Baptist Church in Rincon, Georgia. We ask that you would be with our brethren there and that you would use your word among them to sanctify them, to grant repentance and faith to the unbelievers among them. Father, we ask for your blessings upon our brothers and sisters, and we ask that you would use them in Georgia as a light for your gospel. Father, we also lift up our brothers and sisters at Pleasant Valley Baptist Church, where our brother Nathan this morning is preaching. We ask that you would especially be with our brother, that you would help him to rightly divide your word of truth that you would give those under his ministry of the word ears to hear, hearts to believe, and feet and hands that will obey and be doers of your word. Father, bless their time together and use our brothers and sisters at Pleasant Valley for your glory here in Ashe County. Father, we... Do not forget our brethren throughout the world who are under something that we don't really experience under the severe hand of persecution. Well, Father, we experience the persecution of people thinking poorly of us, of thinking of us as fools, of calling us names. And Father, we thank you that you have counted us worthy to suffer such reproach for the sake of the name of our Savior. Father, we especially lift up our brethren through the world who have to endure physical violence for the name and for our King. Father, we lift up our brethren in North Korea this morning and ask that you would sustain them, that you would provide for them, that your kind providences would shine on them, that you would guide them in their conversations and the people that they interact with, that you would put them before those who will hear your gospel, that you would protect them from those who would seek to slay them. And Father, we ask that through the preaching of your gospel, through the moving of your spirit, that you would begin through our brethren a great revival in North Korea, and that you would see to it that that regime would be brought down, 
and that the light of your gospel would go forth and would reign and that blessings would come from it in that nation. Oh, Father, use your church in North Korea in this way. Father, as we turn our attention now back to where in your providence you have brought us this morning in Genesis chapter 3, we ask that you would help us to hear your word, to believe it, to obey it, to trust in it with all of our heart, to not lean on our own understanding, but to acknowledge you and how we listen and how we pray, and how we sing, and how we receive your blessings, and how we speak to one another, and how we bear one another's burdens, and in how we live out in the world, trusting that you, our great God, that our King Jesus will make our paths straight. And so we ask for your help in all of these ways this morning. In his name, amen. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise and their craftiness. As we are looking at our passage this morning, we know from what we have already gone through that the crafty serpent has managed to enslave Adam and Eve by deceiving them into looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the prospects of eating from it. He has deceived them into looking at that as something other than evil. For Eve, he got her to look at the tree and see it as delightful, as good, as desirable to make her wise. For Adam, he got him to listen to the voice of his wife instead of to the voice of his creator. And ever since this decision, God has seen to it that the wisdom of this world, the wisdom that our brother David mentioned last week, From Ephesians 2, wisdom that follows Satan and does whatever the body and the mind enslaved to sin desires to do. God has seen to it that this wisdom is foolishness. This morning we are going to see this foolishness in the initial consequences of Adam and Eve's sin here in the garden. We will see this morning that even before... God hands out his divine sovereign curses and consequences next week in our passage in verses 14 through 17. We will see that there were natural consequences that came immediately from disobeying God. And we will see that one of those consequences is that Adam and Eve, now enslaved to sin and Satan, naturally join their master and his craftiness of telling half-truths. Let's get started looking at our passage this morning as we look at God's interrogation of Adam and Eve and the excuses that they give to him in response. 
Last week, we looked at Adam and Eve's reaction to the realization that they had sinned against God. We can see their initial reaction in verse 8. Look at it with me again. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. When Adam and Eve heard their covenant God walking in the garden, instead of going to him, instead of striving after him to fellowship with him, their new fallen instinct was to hide themselves from him. Now, it's interesting, as we can see in verse 8, that God came to Adam and Eve during the cool of the day. It's almost as though God came to them during the gentle part of the day. During that part of the day when their fellowship could be the best. But even under these best of circumstances, because of their sin, they now hide from their God. But notice where they hide themselves. They do so among the trees of the garden. Last week we talked about this fact that it is interesting that once they had sinned, they retreated from the middle of the garden where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. They retreated from the middle to the trees that God had given them free access to. And we liken that to a child who's trying to sneak around in the kitchen and get that forbidden dessert out of the refrigerator And as soon as they hear the sound of their mom and dad coming, they run away. They run out of the kitchen, they run out of that place where they shouldn't be, and they go to a place where they know that they are allowed to be, a place where they feel safe, where they feel like they have liberty. But we know what happens when mom and dad hear their child scurrying out of the kitchen. We know what they do. They do exactly what we see God doing In verse 9, look at it with me. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now when we read this, we know that God knows exactly where Adam is. Just like a parent knows when they call to their child that they heard scurrying out of the kitchen. This is not a question that brings God's omniscience Into doubt, this isn't a question that Moses is including here to teach us that God doesn't know all things. Rather, this question in verse 9 is the first of three questions in our passage that we see God asks Adam in order to draw him out. Because Adam is like that child hiding from his parents. He knows he's done something wrong. Adam had fled from the middle of the garden and hid himself among those trees of the garden where he felt like he had liberty to be. God knows that Adam is hiding. God knows that Adam has lost his innocence. God knows that Adam has broken the covenant. God knows that Adam is now a slave to sin. God is drawing him out from where Adam falsely feels safe now. And Adam, no doubt, is hiding because he is expecting punishment. He is expecting the wages for his sin. Adam is expecting God to bring death to him here in the garden. Look at verse 10 with me and see Adam's response to God's initial questioning of him. 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, I'm not sure if Adam knew at this point that he was confessing his sin to God. But here in his answer in verse 10, this sounds a lot like the answers that I used to get very frequently from elementary age kids during my 21 years as a PE teacher. I can't tell you how many times I would call a kid up and I would ask them if they had done something wrong or if they had broken a rule and were doing something they weren't supposed to be doing. And like Adam in our passage, they would hardly ever immediately fess up to doing it. But more often than not, what would happen is that as I would start asking them questions, they would tell themselves, not on purpose, not realizing that that's what they were doing, but they would accidentally plead guilty in the details they were giving me to the questions that I was asking them. We can see the same type of thing happening here in Adam's confession when he says that he knew that he was naked. Whether he realized it or not, he was confessing his sin. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 25, where it said, And the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. As soon as Adam told God that he knew that he was naked and that he hid himself, he had confessed his guilt to God. He had confessed that he lost that innocent where he could be naked and not ashamed. No one had to tell Adam that he was guilty, that he was full of sin. He knew it. And though he tried, he did not know how to cover it up. It was like the illustration that we used last week of those two men who were on trial for armed robbery and the prosecutors questioning somebody else, an eyewitness on the stand, about who they saw committed the crime. And almost involuntarily, the two armed robbers raised their hand in guilt. Now, after Adam inadvertently admits his guilt, God continues to draw him out with two more questions in verse 11. Look at them with me. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? In response to Adam's accidental confession, here in the second question, you can see that that's what God does. He picks up on this detail that Adam had confessed when he asks him, who told you that you were naked? I imagine at this point that Adam's face had that guilty look of realization on it. I imagine it looked a lot like so many of my students' faces when they would hear me pick up on a detail from their answer to show them that I knew that they were guilty. That look that they get on their face when they realize that, oh, he knows. God does this to Adam, and then we can see in the second half of verse 11, he just moves right on into his third question. God gets to the point of these questions when he asks Adam if he's broken the covenant command that God imposed upon him. So God's questions here have been meant to draw Adam out. They have been meant to lead Adam to a confession of his sin. And while we don't know if Adam was redeemed or not, we do know that without confessing, without repenting of sin, 
there was no possibility for reconciliation. And before we move on, I want to take a moment to urge the parents in this room and those who one day will be parents, I want you to urge on you to take note of God's method of dealing with his son here in the garden. Number one, notice that God draws Adam out with questions. He doesn't storm into the garden yelling and screaming out of control. God asks Adam questions in order to get him to admit his own guilt. And this is instructed to us as parents. It is instructed to us that we do well when instead of charging in, yelling and screaming, accusing our children of something they may or may not have done wrong, or even if we catch them red-handed in the act, and we know for a fact that they did it, either way, we do well to ask them questions, to draw them out, to get them, to admit it themselves. And why is this the case? Well, what is the most important hope that we have for our children? Is there anything more important for us than to see our children come to faith in Christ and to walk with him? And is it not true that the very first step in becoming a Christian is to acknowledge your sin before God? To agree with God that you are guilty, that you have done it, that you are the man. Beloved, our children must learn to freely confess their sins because they desperately need to be taught and guided in learning to confess their sins so that they will do so when God confronts them with it in the gospel. Parents, we need to know that if our children cannot humble themselves, if they cannot admit their sin, then they cannot be saved. And we know this. We know that a person cannot be saved if they are proud. If a person is unwilling to admit that they are wrong, if they are constantly trying to justify themselves and their actions, a person who lives like this falls under the condemning words of Scripture God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And what better way can we help our kids in this area than instead of yelling at them and accusing them and having their natural fallen tendency to justify themselves, having that tendency bubble up within them and be cultivated by the constant experience of our yelling and accusing of them and them learning how to weasel their way out of it. And you know that it's bad when they've gotten so good at it where that they take their sin and turn it around on you. Like it's your fault. Like you making the rules, you've done something wrong. So instead of accusing them, beloved, what better way could we help them than to teach them that they can and they should freely confess their guilt when we ask them questions about it? And when we do this, and they do answer our questions honestly, even if it takes some probing to get it out, 
This gives us wonderful opportunities as parents to talk about the gospel with our children. It gives us wonderful opportunities as parents to do what we are commanded to do, to urge the gospel on our children, to teach them the Lord's disciplines and his instructions. We can tell our children when they admit their guilt that we're not surprised. We're not shocked that they disobeyed us. We're not surprised that they sinned in some other way because we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and this is exactly why we need Jesus. You can make a beeline to the gospel in the disciplining of your children. And what pressure we remove from our children when we tell them that we're not surprised that they're not perfect. It's Christian doctrine that you're not perfect. That's not a shock to us, and we don't expect you to be perfect. And what a wonderful opportunity to give gospel instruction to them when you tell them that you're not surprised about these things, and then you can point them to Jesus. You can tell them, you're not perfect, but God requires perfection, which is exactly why you need Jesus. Because God is not going to brush your sin under the rug. He is not going to pat you on the head and pretend like it never happened. But rather, he sent his son into the world to live a perfect life that his people could not live. And that Jesus went to the cross to suffer and to pay the penalty for the sins of everyone who freely admits their guilt and trust in him, looks to him in faith, and that God poured out his wrath that we deserve on his son. And the good news is that if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, son, daughter, that Christ did that for you, you will be saved. You have an advocate with the Father. And so now our children can learn that sin and disobedience aren't just brushed under the rug. They always have consequences. Our children can now see their need for Jesus because God hasn't lowered his standard. He requires perfection. But they can also see that their parents don't expect them to be perfect, but they desperately want them to trust in the Savior who is and who was. They can learn that because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, those who repent and trust in him, never have to endure God's condemning wrath. Parents, this is a wonderful way in which you can image God in drawing your children out with questions to urge the gospel on them. A second way you should be instructed, parents, is that we need to learn from this interaction here in the garden that while confession is necessary, Adam and Eve's confessions here in the garden Do not relieve them of consequences. We will see next week that God indeed does cover them. He removes their fig leaves of their own self-righteousness and covers them with animal skins. But even if this represents forgiveness, there are still consequences. They still get kicked out of the garden. They still lose access to the tree of life. And they are still going to die. 
Parents, you are not doing your child any favors if when they confess their sins, even if they are truly sorry for them, you are not doing them any favors if you take away consequences from them. And this is not contradictory to what I just said because the point of the gospel is that Jesus suffered for us. God did not brush our sin under the rug. He did not lower his standard of perfection. Jesus suffered for our failures and sins. Sin and wrath and judgment did not disappear, but our Savior, beloved, drunk them to the dregs. So while you can use these things to teach your children the gospel and urge it on them, we are called to teach our kids through the discipline that they receive from us. Beloved, we are not called as parents to provide substitutionary atonement for the sins and disobedience of our children when what they need is a spanking. And parents, you can do two things at once. You can make it clear to your children as you're doing this, as you're giving out the consequences, you can make it clear to them that you love them that your relationship is restored and it's been restored through their confession and admitting their sin while at the same time teaching them that sin still has consequences. And the consequences that you give to them, especially when they are unbelieving children, are warnings to them of the consequences that they will one day receive from God if they do not look to Christ in faith. Parents, teach your children the gospel and how you discipline them. And don't pervert it by making it appear as though sin and disobedience have no consequences as long as you fess up. Because even for the Christian, even for the Christian child, when we sin, though there is no condemning wrath for our sin, because Jesus has indeed suffered and took it all upon himself, though there is no remaining wrath for us to endure, there is fatherly discipline. We've been instructed in the scriptures that the discipline of our heavenly father when we sin against him as his children is a wonderful comfort to us as his people because without it in our Christian lives, we are instructed in the scriptures that we would be considered illegitimate because God, our father, disciplines those that he loves. Well, let's get back to our passage now. Look back at verse 12 with me. Let's look at Adam's response to God's interrogation of him. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. We can see that Adam responds to God's direct question about covenant breaking by telling the truth while at the same time shifting blame. Perhaps as he's doing this, he's thinking in his own mind that he's somehow going to reduce or mitigate his punishment. And Adam, showing the corruption that has already happened in his intellect, begins his answer to God in a pretty dumb way. We can see in verse 12 that he begins by pointing at God and basically saying, well, well you gave me the woman. The woman you gave me, she made me do it. And while it is technically true 
that God had given Adam the woman, it is not very bright to begin your defense by condemning your judge. But beyond that thought, we can already see Adam acting like the serpent and perverting the truth because he tells half-truths here in his confession. It is true that God gave the woman to Adam, but Adam is acting like this was a bad thing. Adam's response shows that somehow, in his mind, this has become God's fault. You see how he's perverting the truth here. God had given him the woman as a good thing, as a helper, as an indispensable gift and blessing to him. And now we can see Adam's fallen nature as he is casting blame on God as though God had given him the woman in order to make him fall. When the exact opposite is true, God had given him the woman to help him obey, to help him do what God had commanded and commissioned him to do that he he couldn't do by himself. Now Adam moves from pointing his finger at God to pointing at the woman in the next part of the answer when he says, she gave me the fruit. So if God's not to blame, definitely the woman. God, she was supposed to help me, but instead she has destroyed me. Now there's something absent from Adam's half-truths here that we learn later in the Bible in his blame shifting. Adam not only fails to mention that he was there the entire time that Eve was talking or that Satan was talking to Eve, but he also fails to mention what we learn from Second or First Timothy, chapter two, verse fourteen. We talked about it last week. Adam fails to mention that he was not deceived. The serpent had not pulled the wool over his eyes. Adam was not deceived by the serpent's craftiness, but Adam decided to eat anyway. While we'll see in verse 13 that Eve admits that she was deceived, Adam ate with eyes wide open. He just straight up decided to break covenant with his creator. It wasn't the smooth words of Satan. It wasn't the tree. He looked at it and desired it to make him wise. It was simply that he heard what Satan had said. He had seen his wife eat. And as we will see when we get to verse 17, he decided not to listen to God and his command, but rather decided to listen to his wife, eat from the tree, and join in on the sin party. Now finally, after trying to put two degrees of separation between himself and his sin at the end of verse 12, we can see that Adam finally admits that he ate. He was not forced. He took what his wife gave him, and he ate. Husbands, let us learn from this, brothers. And young men who one day desire to have a wife, you need to hear this truth as well and learn this lesson early on. And we talked about this last week, but we can't say it enough. Brothers, we cannot escape our leadership role. It's impossible because God put it into the design, the fabric of creation. God has given it to us And it will not and is not a valid excuse for us to stand before God and say to him, the helper you gave me, she wouldn't follow my lead. Brothers, we must lead our brides 
We must lead our families. We must give of ourselves. We must pursue our wives' holiness. We must pursue their eternal good. And if in the end, if they refuse to follow us and submit to our leadership, we must not rise up against them like Cain to slay them with our words or actions or lack of action. No, brothers, we are not of the seed of the serpent. Rather, brothers, we are to pour ourselves out continually for them, for their good, even for an unsubmissive wife, just as our Savior has poured himself out for a frequently disobedient bride. And likewise, for my brother pastors or those who are aspiring to the office of overseeing the Lord's sheep or who may one day The labor of a pastor among the sheep is that of an under-shepherd. Brother pastors, we are under-shepherds to the chief shepherd, to the king, to the husband of the church. And as such, we are to pour ourselves out for the sake of our husband's bride. We must be willing to be misunderstood We must be willing to be abused, taken advantage of. We must be willing to endure everything for the sake of the faith of Christ's precious bride that he poured out his blood for. Brother pastors, we must engage in this laboring, remembering that we are not seeking the reward that Christ's sheep can give to us. We are not seeking the reward of their approval. We are not seeking the reward of money. We are not seeking the reward of compliments from Christ's sheep. Brothers, we are not seeking to draw Christ's bride's affections away from him and to us. Rather, we are seeking that they would follow us as we follow Christ. We are seeking to be examples for them. And we are hoping that they will see our love for Christ that they will hear and receive his words through our mouths and that it will serve to increase their faith in him, not in us. Their love for him, not us. Brothers, we are seeking the reward not of Christ's sheep, but the reward of the chief shepherd that he has promised to those who labor well in these ways. Peter spoke of this reward in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he said, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, And when the chief shepherd appears, brother pastor, if you labor in this well, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You've been promised that by the chief shepherd. Let's move on and look at our last verse today and see God's question of Eve and her response. Look at verse 13 with me again. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
So God's question to Eve here is straightforward. He doesn't seek to draw her out with multiple questions like he did Adam, not because she's less important, but because she was with Adam as God is asking him these questions. She has heard the questions that God asked of Adam as he drew him out, and now as Adam admits his guilt, he turns to the woman and says, what is this that you have done? And we can see in verse 13 that like Adam, while Eve tells the truth, she does a little blame shifting of her own. Adam tried to put two degrees of separation between him and his guilt. She just does one. When she says that the serpent deceived me and then she confesses to eating. But notice also that just as Adam doesn't tell the whole truth in his confession, neither does Eve. True enough, Eve doesn't make as many excuses as Adam. True enough, unlike Adam, Eve was genuinely deceived. But peek down to verse 17 and notice something with me. Notice what God says to Adam at the beginning of verse 17. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Beloved Eve didn't just eat from the fruit of the tree and then turn around and innocently hand it to her husband. The half-truth that Eve tells here, what she fails to confess, is that she went the extra mile. She made the effort to persuade her husband to eat from the tree and sin against God. Once giving in to the serpent, Eve listed in Satan's army and joined him in tempting Adam. Beloved, this is how sin works. We know it from Romans chapter 1. People not only sin themselves, but when they do, they want, to, they want to have company. They want to encourage others to join in it with them. For speaking of the wicked, at the end of Romans 1, Paul says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice such things. Unbelievers among us this morning hear this truth from God's word and realize that when your friends, when your family, when our society as a whole, when they cheer you on in your sin, when they accept you as who you are, they are not loving you. They are seeking to drag you to hell with them. Unbelieving friend, it is not love to accept you as you are. That is the most unloving thing that a Christian could possibly do. As the song says, do you want to know what love is? Love is telling you the truth. Love is telling you that your sin is sin and it will condemn you to hell and judgment. That God doesn't accept you for who you are, but that he requires perfection and you can't give it. He requires that you forsake that sin that you love so much. He requires that you repent of it and then look outside of yourself 
for your justification and right standing before him. He requires you to look to his son, the only perfect one in faith. He requires you to follow him, to love him, to obey him, to give your life to labor for him as a servant of righteousness. That is what love looks like. Telling you the truth for the sake of your eternal good, regardless of whether it hurts your feelings, regardless of whether it hurts our relationship, Love is seeking to see you conform your life to what God has revealed in his holy word. And when your friends, when your family, when the culture does the opposite of that, that is hate. According to God, your creator. And dear brothers and sisters in Christ, do not let the world deceive you into accepting sin as a person's identity. Do not let the world pressure you into closing your mouth and not being ambassador for Christ. For while your religion is personal, beloved, it is not private. You are, have been and are commanded to proclaim. You have something to proclaim to the world. We are commanded to give a reason for the hope that is within us when asked, and we are told in the Proverbs that when we keep silent, when we give way to the wicked and just let them run, oh, those poor souls, that we are like muddied streams, polluted fountains is what the Proverbs call the righteous when they give way to the wicked. Beloved, when we do not tell the truth about sin and all its manifestations, we are not being salt, we are not being light, and we have lost our usefulness to this fallen world. And our Savior has warned us about this. He tells us when we are not salt, that we are good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. Beloved, we must purpose to labor for our Savior as his ambassadors, telling the truth to the world, understanding that ever since Abel, Whenever God's people told the truth, the seed of the serpent has always risen up against them to persecute them. Beloved, labor for your Savior, and as we pray every week, count it an honor to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of your Savior. Well, as we prepare to close our time together today and reflect on the truths of our passage, let's first seek to apply a truth to ourselves that we can learn from God's questioning of Eve. Beloved, we need to recognize that even though Adam is guilty, even though Adam is the head of his wife Eve, even though he is the one here in the garden that is re representing all mankind, even though it is Adam, and his sin that plunged all of us into sin and misery and slavery to Satan, even though all of this is true, Eve is still held accountable for her actions. Eve cannot point to her husband and say that he didn't lead her well and expect to not be held accountable for her own actions. 
and even the fact that Eve was genuinely deceived does not mean that she can point to Satan and expect that she's not going to die. There's not going to be any consequences. Even though she was genuinely deceived, she will still, still endure the wages of sin. Beloved, we must learn this lesson well. And though we have spoken to these things in relation to our roles as parents or pastors, the same is true in every area of our lives. Young people, you will be held accountable for how you obey and honor your parents because this you have been commanded by your Creator. Whatever your friends do will be no excuse to you on the last day. You cannot point to Billy and say, he made me do it. That will be of no avail to you, and you need to know that. God commands you to obey and to honor your parents. Parents, when your children have legitimate calls to point at someone else and say, well, well, look, they made me do it. This does not excuse their actions and should not relieve them of their punishment, even if you can see their point. Parents, you will be held accountable for how you train your children in the Lord's disciplines and instructions and the failures of your peers, your fellow parents, that you're looking at how they're doing it with their children will be no excuse to you on the last day. And brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow members of the gathering church, the sins and shortcomings of your brothers and sisters here in the church in no way relieves you of the duties that your king has imposed upon you. Our confession of faith speaks to this aspect of applying these things to our lives in the church when it says in chapter 26, no church members upon any offense taken by them having performed their duty required of them towards the person they are offended at, no church members upon offense ought to disturb any church order or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church or the administration of any ordinances upon the account of such offense at their fellow members. But instead of doing that, which is wrong, they are to wait upon Christ in the further proceedings of the church. Beloved, be instructed that we have a king in our church. We have one that rules over us and governs us for our good, beloved. And if things are not going in the church as you wish and you feel powerless to do anything about it, then be instructed to go to your king in faith, believing that his spirit is at work in your brothers and sisters, and ask him to change things not according to your will, but to his will, for his glory for the good of your brothers and sisters, for the good of his bride, and then be instructed to wait upon your king to act. Because, beloved, we need to know that our, the sin of our brethren, which does happen, is no excuse for our own sin. Everyone needs to heed the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians and Romans, regardless of whether we're talking about the church, parents, spouses, 
children, employees, employers, everyone needs to hear and heed the words of the Apostle Paul. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we, are all, for we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Brothers and sisters, when you hear these things and you think about your life and different areas of your life, if your failures are ever before you like mine are to me, this fact should have a gospel effect on you. The fact of your failures, just like you as parents seek to urge your children to admit their failures, this fact should have a gospel effect on you to drive you out of yourself and to your perfect king. It should cause you to rejoice that you have a mediator. You have a savior who right now is interceding on your behalf. I believe it was Spurgeon who said that when Satan calls me a sinner, he comforts me wonderfully because Christ died for sinners. Beloved, let us not be like Adam and Eve here in the garden telling half-truths, trying to weasel our way out of accountability, trying to justify ourselves, but instead let us heed the words of our Savior who told us, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble, the meek, Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Beloved, the first act of you becoming a Christian was you admitting that you were guilty. Do not try to justify yourselves. Do not try to cover your sin with fig leaves like Adam and Eve did in the garden. But rather, beloved, go to your Savior. Go to your perfect King. Go to Him in faith. Go to Him and look to Him in faith. Listen to His Word in faith and then not only believe His Word, but be doers of it so that like James, you can say, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Beloved, the righteous live by faith. And we are instructed in the scriptures that a saving faith is always a faith that works itself out in the good works that our King has prepared for us, that we should walk in them as Ephesians 2 tells us. We should hear the words of the Apostle Paul and seek to live Philippians 2 out in our lives when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Beloved, labor 
for your king. Do not go to him with excuses and half-truths, but go to him admitting your weaknesses, your failures, and look to him in faith, pleading with him that he must do it. He must show himself strong in your weaknesses. Oh, beloved, do this today. And unbelieving friends among us know that without repentance, without confessing, as long as you seek to justify yourself, you cannot have eternal life. You must admit before God, you must confess with your mouth that you have sinned against him, that his wrath abides on you. But you must look to the cross of Christ in faith and believe that he shed his blood for you. And you have been guaranteed, anyone who does that has been guaranteed in the word of God that if you do those things, you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, oh God, over the last two weeks in your kind providences, you have put before us sobering passages. And in your providence next week, we will have another. Father, we thank you that like our passage next week, even in the midst of sobering words from you, there is hope to be found in the promised offspring of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent, who redeemed us from slavery to death, sin, the grave, and hell, who redeemed us from those things, removed us from the kingdom of darkness, and has placed us in the kingdom of the beloved Son. Oh, Father, thank you for your great acts of mercy in our lives. And as we think about these sobering passages, help us to truly apply them to ourselves. Help us not to skirt along the edges of themselves, always just looking for the sunshine and rainbows. But God, help us to have the fear of you before our eyes that we would not presume upon your mercy and your grace in our lives, but that we would exude thankfulness and praise, that our songs of praise that we offer up to you and trust that you receive because we offer them to you in the name of your Son, that they would not just be empty words for us, but that they would be pregnant with meaning and that our hearts would swell with thanksgiving and praise to our blessed Savior, who is a mighty fortress, who has delivered us from our bondage, and who has promised that the remaining corruptions of our flesh that so easily entangle us shall not have dominion over us. That is, your servant, Samuel Bolton, said, sin rather dies than lives in the Christian. Oh, Father, help us to labor in this world, 
not seeking to gather to ourselves as many treasures and comforts as we possibly can, but help us to lay up our treasures in heaven, in eternity, where things cannot be destroyed or stolen. Oh, Father, help us to constantly keep our eyes on the hills where our help comes from, our eyes on the horizon looking for our King and our Savior to return for us. And help us to not beat one another as unworthy servants, but help us to labor faithfully with the talents and the faith that you have given us trusting that when you return, that you will reward us with good things. And we trust that when you return, you will give to us eternal life, not for things that we do, but for what you accomplished for us, King Jesus. Help us look to you in faith this morning. Help us seek to live for you as citizens of your kingdom this coming week and gather us together next Lord's Day. And even this evening, gather us together to comfort us, to sustain us, to sanctify us, to preserve us for that day of our Savior's return. Oh, Father, help us in all these ways. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.